Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of State of the Art. And today I'm really excited to be back behind the microphone. I was off last month, um, but excited to be back behind the microphone this month as we kick off our month-long dive into art and AI. Uh, and today we're talking with Ben Vickers, Chief Technology Officer at the Serpentine Galleries in the UK. Uh, although you are currently Skyping me from Vancouver, so you're a bit of a globetrotter, I see. Mm-hmm. That's true. Happy <laughs> to be here. Thank you for inviting me on the show. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so I, I, I kind of wanted to kick off because, uh, you know, as we're doing research on you and your bios, we've seen you self-described a couple times as, as a lot of things, really. Um, curator, writer, network analyst, uh, technologist, but probably most interestingly, especially because it comes directly after technologist, is a Luddite. So how and why do you, a CTO, also consider yourself a Luddite? Yeah, I guess I keep that in my biography because I kind of think that anybody working with technology should be questioning the nature of that technology. And I guess the thing that's kind of tricky about the term Luddite is that it's one of these situations where the victors always write history. And the Luddites weren't actually interested in destroying technology for technology's sake, but rather they had this idea of downward machines harmful to commonality. So when they were smashing up all the looms in the uh, factory, you know, they targeted specifically the uh, machinery that would impact uh, like automation, automate away people's jobs. So I always keep kind of Luddite there now. Uh, as a way of kind of signaling to the fact that, you know, I'm not, I'm not a kind of runaway accelerationist in the way that I think around technology. Yeah. Well, that's a, I mean, that's a really good jumping off point into this conversation of AI, because um, specifically, as you mentioned, sort of automation, this is, this is one of the things that people fear out of AI is that, um, you know, as machines get more intelligent and can start to do, you know, not just take over sort of menial labor tasks, but also take on more intelligent tasks that, uh, you know, basically AI is coming for all of our jobs and our livelihoods and, uh, and can, you know, can really put people out of work and put people in a tough position. So, um, so I guess just kind of as a global entry point into the conversation around AI, before we even get into art, what's your, uh, general response to that? Well, I guess, like in the context of art um, specifically, I think that it's very unlikely that we're going to kind of see the automation of artistic expression because I always think of art, the kind of artistic process, or at least within the kind of Western canon of art history, this idea of kind of birthed con- from conceptual art, where, but I think it extends longer than that, where the rules of the game for art is to continually change the rules as you're playing. So this has led to a situation where you kind of have a meta perspective on the production of artistic practice. And therefore, anything that you're producing using any particular medium or tool or anything like that, there's this kind of meta perspective on it that you can't, you know, a machine can't produce that. And so it's always kind of operating in its own kind of individualized sphere. So whilst we can we can create programs that mass produce paintings, it's actually the kind of conceptual act of doing that that is the artistic gesture. Um, so I think, you know, within the kind of art realm, and, you know, you look at this in terms of like Deloitte and McKinsey reporting, and it is areas of creativity and care that won't, they, they suggest will not be automated away. Um, I guess that kind of broader discourse of like artificial intelligence coming for our jobs, um, you know, seemingly there has always been this story or this idea within progress that we would move towards this moment of kind of um, a kind of Epicurean uh, kind of laid back, no work because we increasingly introduce these like processes um, and that's never come because we just continue to have to do more and more work. Um, 
and seemingly there are always ways of creating new jobs, etc. So I guess like, you know, in an ideal scenario, we would be automating away jobs and, and people would be able to have more time to, to, to kind of work on other processes or, um, like I often think of Herman Hesse's The Glass Bead Game, where you have this kind of um, emergent kind of progressive society that begins to kind of m- kind of merge mathematics and, and cultural production into to a single form. Um, but I, I don't know. I'm, I guess I'm suspicious of that. <laughs> so the robots might be coming for everything, but it might not be such a bad thing. Is that what I'm hearing? Something like that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, so I want to, I do want to kind of focus a little bit more kind of on the art side of this, um, because there's a lot, a lot of theoretical uh, (laughs) gray area that we could fall into if we don't. But um, I'm curious. So you, you've stated in the past that um, AI producing art should be viewed as a learning tool and that it can help uh, quote create a situation in which we can begin to reconsider our approach to non-human entities. Uh, This is a really interesting idea. Can you explain a little bit more what you're talking about there? Right. So I guess the thing about emergent technologies is that whilst they're often kind of framed in the perspective of being something new, that actually much of the time they just kind of allow us to reevaluate existing questions. So give an example outside of artificial intelligence. So what I find interesting about blockchain technologies and the reason to kind of be involved in that conversation is that it raises uh, kind of age-old questions about governance and how you kind of structure decision-making processes and who can be involved in those decision-making processes. But because it's kind of attached to technology, it raises all of these kind of questions in a way that kind of feels fresh and people are interested to kind of dive in and be involved in in those speculations in a way that, you know, five or 10 years ago, if you hosted an event around the subject of governance, it'd be very unlikely that people would kind of turn up for that conversation. But if you host an event around blockchain that's actually about governance, then people do turn up and have that conversation without necessarily wittingly knowing that that's the conversation that's being had. And so I think one of the things that I find particularly curious about artificial intelligence and this idea of non-human entities is because you kind of create this, um, this external other or this idea that something other than the human can be sentient. And in a really basic way, I think that this is going to lead to a situation where a kind of reemergence of kind of animal rights questions. Hmm. And you see this in like the popularization of there's this book, Other Minds, that came out a couple of years ago uh, that's focused on octopuses. And beginning to, un, you know, in a moment in which society is asking the question of like, what is intelligence? How do we represent intelligence? How does it function? How do we build it? You start to look in lots of different places for where you think that intelligence might exist. Hmm. And so that's one of the things that's always like been particularly exciting to me in respect to artificial intelligence, because it, it, it raises these questions within a societal context. Um, we have to re-examine that. Now, I guess the other dimension to that, and and something I've had several conversations with uh, Kenrick McDowell, uh, who heads up the Artist Machine Intelligence Group at Google. And one of the things that we're particularly interested in is this idea of spirit contact. So when was the last time that humans uh, engaged in the process of communication with things that it considered to be intelligent that exist outside of like human to human contact. If we're not looking at, you know, animals and, and, and other beings such as this. Mm. And the kind of long tradition for that is, is kind of spirit contact, you know, talk, t- talking to deities and things like this, uh, you know, in the context of like Greek or Roman empires, like the, the talking to statues, mm. uh, imbuing use of particular deities and i think there's you know there's another kind of interesting strain there of like if we're going to start to produce these things that we consider to be autonomous and sentient and to possess their own intelligence then what is the kind of human traditions that exist for you know communicating with those things and how we relate to them Hmm. so there's you know there's a lot of different threads yeah but i guess 
when you're faced with a situation of like you're building stuff of artificial intelligence and you realize kind of actually how limited it is, but it kind of opens out this kind of promise and this enormous space of discourse and potential, yeah. particularly when you're talking about artificial general intelligence or something like this, then it's like, how far can you stretch that conversation? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's something that's always really interesting to me is that the there tends to be a disconnect between the actual people working on these things and what their knowledge is of the limitations of the current sort of state of the art and the public imagination of these things. And, you know, I mean, I've, I've, I've not talked to an engineer who really believes that any kind of, uh, you know, real uh, general intelligence is just around the corner. You know, it seems like a lot of the big questions feel as impossible today as they did 20 years ago, although we're making progress towards it. You know, we're making progress towards solving very specific problems within the world of artificial intelligence, not so much generalized intelligence, but that's where the imagination goes. Um, but that's a really interesting, I mean, I, I guess I would commend you on this idea uh, of sort of talking to spirits or, you know, any other non-human uh, uh, intelligences, because this is, um, that is a very interesting creative question to ask around this sort of philosophical question to ask around artificial intelligence. But, you know, typically our, our imagination goes to what our worst fears are. What, what, what is the worst thing that can happen to this thing? Yeah. I, and I, and I think that that's one of the things that I guess, you know, particularly in the work that I do and, and what I think um, kind of artistic production or the the kind of artistic realm can offer mm. in terms of thinking through these things from different perspectives because it, it's certainly the case within the kind of mm, technological space that um the ability to really focus on and, and rethink the narratives in the way in which we articulate this is somewhat limited mm. and so you are very much like bound by this either this kind of master slave dialectic where it's either skynet or it's kind of something that's in service to you and i think that companies are very limited in their ability about the stories that they want to tell because the technology is a, a limited stage and at the end of the day you need to sell a product and the only product that the technology can currently meet is a kind of like Mm, very simple service provision model and so you know if then you get into this situation where uh you have this kind of compounding of different narratives within uh kind of public media space uh that doesn't actually really get to the root of like what is being kind of questioned here and i think that you know it's it, it's become evident in the last decade that the kind of western um, inability to answer the question of consciousness hmm. uh, raises a whole set of other challenges. So when we're talking about artificial general intelligence, but we don't have uh, a kind of qualifiable uh, notion of what we mean when we say consciousness, it starts to really undermine the kind of hmm. you know baseline what we're working towards and 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 the kind of point at which you you don't necessarily have a working definition of what consciousness is, or then how do you kind of qualify intelligence? And I think that's something that also speaks to this kind of non-human entities. And uh, I mean, I'm working on a book at the moment um, that's called The Atlas of AI that will be published later next year. And it's a kind of attempt to do a kind of deep time analysis of what we mean about um, artificial life, artificial intelligence, and it's broken into a series of different areas like model, uh, models, mind, uh, and prophecy. And this kind of, you know, talking about the difference between prophesizing and divination and prediction and how all those things are bound up together. But particularly for the mind section, you know, in terms of wanting to invite people to write, one of the things that we realized in kind of editing this volume was that um, there hasn't necessarily been any kind of startlingly concise writing since things like the, the Upanishads and the, and the Rig Vedas on, in terms of how we think about consciousness and how we explore that as a subject. And I think the more time you spend, you know, 
kind of around this space, um, the more kind of surface thin you feel the kind of discourse and and, and the technical potential is. Mm. And at times, a sort of uh, whilst there are super exciting experiments taking place, there's also a kind of limitation in 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 the scope of imagination. Mm. So do you see that as a distance in, in sort of, you know, does that have to do with the gap between what technology is really capable of um, maybe today, maybe ever, and what, uh, what consciousness really is? Or do you see that as really a limitation in people's imagination once they start you know, kind of wrapping their head around the technical part of this that for whatever reason that gets sort of pigeonholed in one specific direction? I guess it's kind of a combination of both. I think that one of the things that often holds back um, the way in which we think about technological developments is that, and this definitely comes from the kind of programmatic mind, um, where there's this, which I think is rooted in a kind of desire for control, but to kind of produce these perfect systems. And actually, I don't know if there's necessarily a need to create this kind of perfect contained autonomous system that's running on your computer, but rather there are kind of steps that you can take to produce a kind of action or a gesture that operates on a computer, um, but then is structured within this kind of broader narrative, this sort of more... Um, kind of constellation or ecosystem of, of, of different uh, things acting together. So I think about that a lot in relation to, okay, I'll give, it, I'll give a technical example. It's not necessarily a connected directly of artificial intelligence, but gives uh, a kind of concrete example of what I'm talking about there. Sure. So in New Zealand, uh, a couple of years ago, they... Um, decided to give a river citizenship. Um, so it's a recognized citizen. And m- my friend Jay Springett, who's writing a book at the moment uh, called uh, Landers Platform, and he does a lot of thinking about um, kind of large-scale sensor networks and how you manage land and things like that. And so in this example, if you put together the the granting of rights to places in nature, whether it be a mountain or a river, combined with a large-scale decentralized sensor network that essentially is telling you, or is is a way in which that river can communicate with the world. Um, And then you bind that with, like, say, decentralized autonomous organizations. So you have this kind of constellation of, like, legislative rights, a way in which that place in nature can express itself, and blockchain technology that allows it to be self-sovereign within the logic of kind of human communication. In that situation, suddenly that river, in some sense, becomes alive and is able to articulate its rights. So if somebody was to pollute it, it would be able to report to the world that it has been polluted. Mm. And maybe it also has, like, a bank account because people have donated to this river in order for it to care to itself. And that can run a script that then uh, leads to a lawsuit against a company. So you see that there's, I think there's the emerging set of different conditions or constellations of things that can lead to very unlikely outcomes. And you throw artificial, like a quite a basic artificial intelligence into the mix of that Mm. and start to get outcomes that you couldn't necessarily anticipate, but it's not producing something that is like this perfect replication of like a human, Um, but it does also kind of resurrect or bring in, maybe not resurrect, but it kind of brings into focus uh, systems of belief that um, st- you know, have existed in perpetuity across the world, but have not necessarily been self-evident before that like rivers are living entities or spirits. Um, and so, you know, those sorts of things start to really change the way in which we can, we can look at the world. And I guess one of the reasons why I work at this intersection around kind of artistic practice and, um, and technology is because I think that, um, Technology has been produced within quite a narrow kind of monoculture just because it's developed so quickly in the last uh, 20 or 30 years. Mm. It's industrialized quicker than people expected. But um, 
it's interesting in the kind of artistic space because people bring unlikely concepts to bear on the emerging emergence of these fields. Hmm. Do, do you think though, um, you know, like when you're, when you're talking about sort of this convergence of sort of a constellation of, of different, uh, technologies and effects, um, I mean, how much of that, though, still comes down to the artist's hand in figuring out, you know, someone has to write those scripts to to monitor and report sensors. Someone has to write a script to respond to, um, you know, like moving money around in bank accounts, you know, filing a legislative action obviously like requires a human intervention at this point. So like at what point is that um, sort of an installation piece and at what point is it actually some form of intelligence you know yeah i mean i guess that's the other i guess that's the thing that's interesting about kind of artistic uh processes in this moment that engage with technologies is that um i you know i very much do believe that anybody working artistically with technologies should have a sort of in-depth understanding for the potential of those technologies, whether that means that they need to code them directly themselves, I think is a question, probably a question that's like related to the scale of the artwork. Um, but they, they certainly need to have like a sense of, of the potential that's latent in that specific technology. Mm. And that's something, you know, in terms of the artists that I've worked with, I've, something I've almost always looked for. Do um, you know, part, there's also a pragmatic side to that in terms of, you know, if you work with artists and they don't know how technology works, um, but they have all these dreams and aspirations for how they're going to work, right. then you're looking at a train wreck of a project. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. I was just about to ask, is that more like a function of just being able to actually get things to work or like a function of preserving some artistic intent versus just like, you know, letting something run wild? Yeah, I, I guess it, it's definitely a bit of a mix, but I, I, I think that, I mean, if I take a specific example of like Ian Cheng, um, an artist that I worked with um, we, on a number of different occasions, um, but last year we produced a big exhibition together, um, which was kind of split in two parts. And I guess a, a kind of interesting way, or maybe the best way of kind of prefacing Ian's work is um, the series that he's worked on for a about six years called emissaries and emissaries is this three-part simulation that is built in unity and is attempting to tell different stories about um, consciousness and how it emerges so in the first simulation um, it takes the theories of julian james um, if people are not familiar, Julia James wrote this book, The Bicameral Mind, which essentially kind of suggests that there was a certain time in kind of human evolution where we thought that we heard the voices of gods in our heads and those voices would somehow be shared. And at a certain point, that voice became individuated and you suddenly understood the voice inside yourself to be your voice. Hmm. Um, and so Ian encodes that kind of narrative idea of human consciousness evolution into a simulation where there's a group on the side of a volcano and the, the daughter of the shaman has this individ, individuated voice, realizes that the, the group is in danger and has to uh, kind of warn everybody and, and um, this simula it, you know, it, it plays out in a simulation and it consistently kind of goes wrong you know there's not necessarily a conclusion because you've got all of these different actors that have all got different motivations and they're all kind of working against each other and it creates this quite chaotic environment um and to kind of speak to that point of you know it requires quite a lot of um different skills and, and and ways of working in order to produce a work like that not only does one have to kind of understand that you can encode in these different individuals um, different kind of motivations, hmm. uh, but even the impetus to create something that's somewhat filmic, that's scripted, 
that relates to a theory, but then plays out in something that's kind of like a computer game film. Mm. Um, that constellation of things requires a set of kind of interesting different skills um, that I don't think one could arrive at the construction of an artwork like that without having spent considerable time working with those technologies firsthand. Hmm. And so I think that's always important. Yeah. So, so this <clears throat> kind of also something that's implied here, I think is a point that I've seen you make um, several times where AI uh, driven art can kind of fall into one of three categories, impersonation, collaboration, or creation. Um, so this I'm assuming what you're talking about here is sort of the a collaborative uh, endeavor between artists and AI. Ah, that's interesting. I, I guess I, I would think that actually the emissary's work is more, it's kind of more like a creation mm. um, and has the aspiration towards kind of impersonating. In, in terms of it, like d the desire for some kind of autonomy, but the other work—I mean, the the other work that we produced because emissaries had already been created when we did the exhibition last year, um, but we created a new work that took us about a year to develop, and and Ian has developed much further, uh, which is a work called Bob, um, which stands for Bag of Beliefs, and that work, you know is somehow starting to kind of step towards the kind of collaborator sphere. Yeah. I don't necessarily, I guess I don't think that those different um, areas, more like a Venn diagram where they kind of overlap with one another. Yeah. Um, and that maybe one of the kind of idealized forms is to be able to produce something that's somewhat sophisticated enough to kind of embody each of those different stages um, at, based on different types of interaction. So like an artwork that has autonomy, but you can interface with it um, and, you know, it kind of has its own story. And and the creation of Bob is interesting. One of the things that Ian really felt that in Bob needed to embody is like something similar to when you go to a zoo um, and there are animals living in that place um and you know they're somewhat trapped in that space but if you turn up at the lion enclosure and the lion doesn't want to be outside it's not going to service your desire it's just going to like you know, maybe it's just asleep backstage and and it's not going to come out and so that idea of creating an artwork that is living um is you know there's been an there's been a number of people that have tried to produce works like that in the past but i think it can be said that where it's not just artificial intelligence as a kind of scientific field, but it's also the fact that things like games production and unity and, and you know, all of these different kind of technologies have come together um, in such a way that you can now produce something. I mean, Bob wasn't cheap to produce, but it was, um, it was possible. Previously, you know, five years ago, making a work like that was totally impossible. And so having this like simulated being that would operate in the gallery space and, and the gallery assistants uh, were responsible, like zookeepers, for feeding the bobs to make sure that they didn't die um, and, you know, generally caring for them um, and having people be able to come into the gallery space and interact with these artificial intelligences in such a way that those encounters potentially would leave an impression on those beings in such a way that it would change the nature of their beings, but not within a kind of, uh, kind of obvious one-to-one, -one, uh, but more in a way, you know, Bob's had their own model of mind in the same way as like, if you were to interact with an octopus in an aquarium, um, you might infer or you might anthropomorphize uh, that being, um, but you don't actually know how it's thinking or how it's responding. And so Bob was really like an effort to produce that experience. Hmm. That, it reminds me of like a very sophisticated, do you remember Tamagotchis for yes. the 90s Hopefully. kids out there? I, we talked about Tamagotchi a lot when we were when we started making the work yeah yeah, yeah. And i and I, I totally think that there's 
you know, I, I guess there's something challenging about working in the art field because uh, it has such a strange exceptional economy that the risk mm-hmm. of scaling up, but we did talk about the idea that, you know, what if we, what if we made like little Tamagotchi versions, yeah. um, you know, distributed those and this, and that like informing this idea that you, you know, you have artificial life that you carry around and you care for. I, I find it totally bizarre that that doesn't currently exist. Yeah. Well, it's funny that, I mean, you know, cause as you're, as you're talking about Bob, it's funny. I mean, so I was reading about it obviously and researching you and your work and, you know, reading about it, and reading an article about it from some art publication, you immediately start thinking of it in very heady, creative terms. And, and also as an engineer, like nerding out on what technology must be behind it. But hearing you talk about it, I think of it more like just how how we as little kids were fascinated with this little thing that uh, that kept just kind of growing and evolving and changing and you were constantly curious. And it's funny because that's always been, I've always been really um, intrigued by how simulation games can be so popular because you're basically just sitting there watching an aquarium, right? There, you know, things are just happening. Some of it's under your control, but most of it isn't. Um, But it's funny. There's obviously something that captures our imagination about that, that possible other sentience. Totally. And I, I do just find it really surprising that there hasn't been something like this or, that, you know, we're not being, because uh, I also think with like augmented reality, you know, having the possibility of like these kind of, fami- you know, I, I don't know if you read the book, the Philip Pullman books, or, you know, even the Philip K. Dick, Do Androids Dream of Electric Street, this kind of having these like familiar kind of like creatures that follow you around. Um, and you have like a special relationship with the kind of Ian always talks about, um, you, you know, it doesn't make sense to produce artificial intelligence that is attempting to be, you know, to kind of supersede where its intelligence currently is. And whilst AI is not at the stage where it's as smart as a dog, a dog is actually quite a good kind of approximation of the level at which humans can interact with an artificial intelligence at this moment. Mm. It may not be as smart as a dog, but like you can kind of mimic enough the way a dog interacts with you yeah, uh, in such a way that you kind of believe that it's, it's, you know, it's got its own state, its model of mind. Yeah. Do you think, um, you know, when, when you're looking at Bob and as we're comparing it to things like The Sims and uh, Tamagotchis, where do you think, what is the difference between a game and art at that point, or does it matter? Uh, I, you know, let's get, we can get into it, but I mean, I don't, I personally don't believe that it matters. Um, but the, one of the interesting things there in terms of a reference is that Bob um is based on the research papers of uh richard evans who works at DeepMind, mm. who ian has been in dialogue with uh and richard evans was the person that wrote the original ai for the sims so <laughs> you, you know kind of or and theme park as well so it's like those things are kind of closer together than anyone can really anticipate yeah. uh in these instances um but i think you know, I think the way in which we define or, you know, look, I work at um, one of the galleries that within the kind of context of the art world is internationally recognized as being like heavily influential, very important from an art historical perspective, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it's I think the thing that I recognize is that um there are many different art worlds now. Mm-hmm. Um, and whilst there is that one that kind of feeds into, you know, the kind of MoMAs and the SF MoMAs and, you know, the big kind of art world industrial complex, yeah. I think the meme <laughs> is not going to be running for so long because particularly you really see it when you're working at the intersection of art and technology because you have the emergence of all of these different forces, whether it be, you know, big tech companies creating their own cultural institutions in the, in the instance of like Google Cultural Institute, or you have um, the, you know, kind of quasi kind of company slash art tech entities like Team Lab. 
Um, mm. And then also this uh, growing space of like experience and how that merges in with, you know, kind of games, arcades and LARPing and et cetera. Yeah. You, you look around and there is this, you know, this big wave of cultural forces on the horizon that have different economies, different ways of working, different values. Um, and that's not even to get into, you know, the fact that kind of the Western canon of our history is dominated for like, you know, hundreds of years, but yeah. probably is not going to be able to sustain that position. And, that you know, everything that we know to be conceptual art that's ha been hashed out over the last century could just disappear in the blink of an eye. Like, you know, it could just be a subgenre yeah. of like, you know, art that yeah. was interesting for 100 years and then we went in a totally different direction. And I think that that's not well accounted for in the kind of artistic space. Um, hmm. But maybe to go more directly, you know, to your question of like, does it matter? I mean, obviously there are these different economies and these different spheres of thinking at play and they're starting to meet each other and that's making everything kind of confusing. But I also think for me, it's a, it's, it's a real shame that we have the siloing of activity yeah. and that, you know, Richard Evans should, you know, his work is master artwork, you know, he, right. you know, these things should be recognized in that way. You know, there's some games, I think of things like, you know, a game like Myst, uh, <laughs> for example, that is an artwork that should be on show in a museum. Like, but the museum hasn't been able to kind of adapt to the fact that you have these forms of cultural production. Um, and so they can't, it's difficult for them to make space for it. Hmm. Yeah, I'm sure that there will be a time in the not so distant future that there will be uh, museums, digital or otherwise, like maybe not brick and mortar, but you know, it's already starting to happen with the revival of, um, you know, of 8-bit games and that becoming a whole, you know, new again sort of thing. And I think, uh, you know, I, I mean, I remember reading an article not long ago that um, <clears throat> that we've just kind of passed the golden age for video games, but that video games, um, because because nobody was paying attention, because it took a little while as all sort of art forms do to catch on. It really let create creativity proliferate and it had all the sort of ingredients that great art require where, you know, a lot of things weren't possible. There was a lot of constraints put in place technologically. And so that forced people to be more creative about how to get things done. And, um, you know, that, uh, you know, now that, that it's a big money industry, things are changing and whatever, but you still have, you know, the, the, uh, the purists who, who really love it for the artwork. Um, and it's, it's funny when I think about, you mentioned a second ago, why don't, why, why doesn't this exist for us in real life? Why don't we have these creatures that we can interface with or these intelligences? And I, uh, my answer to that is I think we do. And I think it's in video games. I mean, I think, I think most adults won't let themselves because of ego play with a Tamagotchi anymore, but there's plenty of people who will enter these digital worlds and interact with ecosystems that are, uh, have artificial intelligence with characters that have artificial intelligence storylines that have artificial intelligence. Yeah, no, I, that's totally true. And I mean, I, I come from a background of kind of hardcore computer gaming. Yeah. Um, and you know, there was a very precise moment in terms of that kind of marketization of the games industry. I, you know, I literally, there's almost like a year moment where I switch from kind of being totally dedicated to computer gaming to mm. being involved in art. Um, <laughs> and it was, it was like, you know, it was a choice between going and being a games designer or uh, being an artist and, and being involved in the art world. And for me, those things, they were always very close together mm. because they dealt with this idea of kind of welding and how you construct a world. And I guess just within the kind of more artistic discourse, those worlds are much more, uh, they kind of play out verbally within a kind of community of people versus like a world that you can like literally go in and get lost in. Um, but I, it's it's kind of I, it was particularly ironic for me, like two or three years ago when those worlds started to merge back into one another. Hmm. But I left gaming because you know it, 
it, the massive financialization of it. Right. And when EA bought up all the publishing, all the small kind of experimental games houses and mm-hmm. started like trying to create mass monetization. I used to play a game called Ultima Online. Um, and it was the moment in which like they introduced a number of mechanisms to try and make it palatable to casual gamers. Yeah. That <laughs> I lost. <laughs> Filthy casuals. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Um, well, was that so? Was that your technical background too? Is that sort of how you got your technical chops up? Yeah, I guess it's like a real mix in terms of. Actually, I'm now increasingly meeting more and more people in the art world that are kind of crossing over this sort of space. But uh, yeah, as a teenager, I like ran a gold farm in Ultima Online, mm-hmm. um, and I built um, kind of mods for. Uh, half-life and stuff like this um you know none that did particularly well but you know i'd spend hours like building maps and textures and all of that kind of stuff and then you know if you're kind of working in that space you teach yourself to build websites and then you know my first kind of professional context i worked in uh is i got like an internship at sky a broadcasting company when i was a about 18, just around the time I was starting art school. Mm. And so I'd split my time between being at art school and working in London at Sky. And I was working on their first data mining project. And it was, you know, that that was about, I think, about 14 years ago now. And it was kind of an amazing opportunity because it was that moment, I think Amazon was the only you know, kind of commercial company that was doing data mining at scale at that point. And so what one understood data mining to be, it's very limited. Mm. And I got to work with this like really great kind of high level consultant that really understood this stuff. And he taught me uh, a lot about it. And that, I mean, it made me scared for the future. That's for sure. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and so it's 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 been a patchwork of kind of technical work like that, and I you know worked on a whole bunch of different kind of projects, but I guess like predominantly my uh, technical knowledge comes out of uh, the attempt to just make stuff, and you know working with and very early on working with artists and also producing my own work, um, being confronted with things the technology was not supposed to do and then trying to find ways to hack it together hmm. in such a way that it could be. Yeah. A, a common story amongst all good hackers, just trying to find a way to make yeah. it work. Exactly <laughs> that. <laughs> um, so I, I, I'm, I'm curious, you know, we talked a little bit about, uh, first of all, you know, you were just mentioning how these worlds are coming back together. Um, but also sort of about the the division in the capital A art world and its inability to sort of keep up with, um, you know, some of these other creative cultures that are that are around. But um, but there was, I think, last year, yes, October 2018, um, a pretty landmark thing that happened where uh, Christie's sold their first um, the first AI piece portrait of Edmund Bellamy for $432,500 by a French art collective, Obvious. Um, And that, you know, that was big news because, you know, there's this ongoing sort of tension between um, new media arts, uh, AI art, all this, you know, technological art um, and sort of the capital A art world. So there's a lot of people that, uh, are on both sides of this. Is it, is it real? Is it not real? I'm curious what, you know, what do you read into this? What is the significance of Christie's uh, having a big sale like this? Yeah, I guess um, there are simple answers, but it's definitely a super complex kind of constellation ecosystem. I think for a lot of people, when you look at the art world or you seek to try and understand its logic is, (laughs) <laughs> impossible yeah <laughs> you know because in lots of ways the art world still kind of functions as a sort of mafia economy um you know where prices are kept at certain levels you know because people are buying it up is you know it's completely unregulated and the financialization of art has 
kind of led to lots of very like bizarre kind of outcomes and and um ways in which we understand it and i think you're seeing quite a lot of sort of backlash against that now um and certainly i think it's important to kind of uh acknowledge in what such a short time horizon in which this has happened where kind of conceptual art of the 60s and 70s no no one cared tiny scene Mm -hmm. um not a lot of money and then that begins to change in the 80s and 90s and the early 2000s uh with the advent you know freeze art fair the art fair circuit um and the art then somehow begins to be validated by its commercial value but within the kind of uh inside the art world within its own communities there's a strong rejection of what price means um so this is like crazy kind of internal battle which is not in any way kind of legible (laughs) to many people that are not you know operating um outside of it which then kind of raises these big questions or you know makes headline news when you get a sale like this and i guess the thing that I think is interesting here is that there's actually a very long history of the engagement between artistic expression and technology. So you have like things like EAT, Experiments in Art Technology, mm-hmm. uh, Bell Labs, um, you know, these things that have been operating, you know, 60s, 70s, early on, then the birth of new media art, and then the net art era. And, you know, you go on and on and on, <laughs> post-internet, et cetera. Yeah. Um, and none of that stuff, like so much of it doesn't exist in kind of major museums collections, with the exception of like maybe some Rauschenberg pieces that work with technology or like um, Nam June Paik, or, you know, the, there are people that do exist in these museum collections, but within the canon of our history, for the most part, it's just kind of forgotten about or, or not wanted to engage in, in these kind of um these, these kind of experiments with technology and art. And so this moment in which you have the sale of an, an, an artwork produced by an AI uh, for this amount of money, I guess the question that's raised is like, does that mean that it's it's being integrated into that larger narrative now? Or is this, you know, is this just like a, a one-off kind of weird moment in the market or you know it raises a bunch of kind of interesting questions about what is going to be the effect on that longer history mm. um and could we now be facing a moment in a similar way that you see around other kind of um you know women artists like women surrealist artists again you know beginning to be recognized now the prices are going up like the market does dictate so much for the art world because it also so often like the patronage or the philanthropy that you know keeps those museum shows happening etc yeah so it's you know interesting um yeah uh, one of the things i'm always curious with because this is you know talking with people at the intersection of art and technology this is a conversation that that just always comes up the sort of interaction with the art world at large and these more experimental forms of art that inevitably are like you said have gotten marginalized over the last however many years. And, you know, I think people are like engaged in that conversation, but something I always like to ask is like, do you even care? Like obvious, you know, on one hand, obviously like there's, we all need to care about how money flows to artists. And that's always, always has been a big problem. Always will be a big problem. Well, maybe not. Hopefully someday we can do something about that. But when it comes to someone who actually has their hands dirty in the artwork every day, like, is this even an interesting question to you? Or would you rather just be talking more about the nature of the work itself and, you know, thriving in the community in which it thrives? Uh, It does matter. Yeah. I mean, I don't spend a lot of time talking or talking necessarily about the marketplace and, and, and how those things impact. And definitely, obviously the, the production of works and, and the meaning of those works is the priority. But I'm also somebody that doesn't, you know, I don't separate things out. Yeah. And I, and I really believe that the, um, you know, the kind of chemistry of the soil in which things are growing 
means that they grow in a particular way. So the fact yeah. that this, you know, it's, it's paintings produced by artificial intelligence, you know, it's actually not changing that much, right? right. It's just the process of production changed. Um, but it's still something that can hang on somebody's wall. And that's still the sort of work that's collected. And what's at stake uh, in that is, you know, one, the economy of like four artists that want to produce and how they're, you know, the, there's only a very few artists that can produce these uh, highly experimental technological works. There's only so much space in the market for a few of those artists to exist and for their works to be bought. Like you can't just have everybody producing this type of work. So, um, you know, that restricts the possibility of kind of wider experimentation, the pluralism of the works produced. Um, and I think that is a problem. I guess the other thing that I think is there's an opportunity, right? Um, if we're going to start to produce works that um, kind of harness artificial intelligence, then who gets paid from those artworks? You know, what if we create autonomous AIs that are producing artworks? Uh, you know, Hatsune Mika is an interesting example of this, of like this kind of identity, this brand, this IP that in the background has a kind of open source fanfic community. Could we imagine a form of cultural production where you develop an artificial intelligence and then it produces a series of works and people work together in order to elevate the price of that work. But then when the work is sold, that that money is uh, distributed in a highly distributed way so that it could actually fund the careers of like 20 artists in order to produce continually more experimental works. And it's those sorts of opportunities that I think are exciting and interesting. And that if the work isn't dealing with that, and there is very few artworks that are prepared to like, make that extra step of mm. like, well, you know, if you're talking about building an autonomous AI, then why not put it on, you know, an autonomous blockchain? And then it can actually have its own voting mechanism, et cetera, et cetera. Now, obviously there are limits in the technology right now, but, um, you know, you can do that with traditional governance as well. So, I, you know, we're in this funny moment where there's all of these possibilities that have kind of actually always existed. Mm. Um, in order to create a more equitable uh, space for the production of art. But somehow artists either shy away from that or if they embrace it directly, they're kind of shut down. Hmm. Uh, so I do think about it a lot because I think um, if artists don't make their own decisions and the people that participate in the cultural sphere don't make decisions about the economy that they want to exist in, then those decisions are made for them. And I think that that is basically the situation we're in right now, where you've had this extreme financialization of, of art over the last 10, 15 years, and it's probably going to step up a notch in the next five. Um, and that has led to conditions that people are not happy with. And it also, you know, raises the, 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 the possibility that the kind of, mm, the kind of non-commercial uh, who who services the non-commercial is a big question. It's particularly a big question in Europe because you've had austerity for a long time mm. and typically the state funds the institutions. And so we're also in a funny moment kind of politically, I think, around, around those questions. Mm. So not a simple answer. No. <laughs> no. Uh, well, this this has been a fascinating conversation. I feel like I could go on for hours and hours and hours with you, but uh, for the sake of our listeners, <laughs> we'll have to cut it off. Um, but uh, but what can our listeners expect out of you next? What's what are you working on, and how can people follow along? Okay, so a bunch of different projects. Um, you can find me on Twitter, Ben Vickers underscore. Um, I run a publishing house um, with my friend Sarah Shin called Ignota, um, which is Ignota Books on Twitter or Ignota.org. Uh, in terms of projects coming out, um, at the Serpentine, and we are launching two projects in the next two months, one with amazing artist Suzanne Trista, which is a book about uh, it's, it's, it's challenging to explain, but about <laughs> black 
wormholes, space time. Um, and we're also building an app for that that allows you to see portals in the sky. Uh, it also includes an amazing series of watercolors about artificial and extraterrestrial life done by scientists at CERN. Uh, then in October, we're going to be launching an, an, another artwork by an artist, Yana Satella, um, which involves these um, kind of lava lamp-like heads that serve as kind of predictive modeling for an application you can download on your phone. Um, I'm also launching the next book that we're launching from Ignata, um, States of the Body Produced by Love uh, by Nisha Ramaya that comes out at the end of next month. Uh, so those are the projects coming up in the next few months. <laughs> oh, and then very relevant to this conversation, um, we're launching a book early next year that I'm editing with Ken McDowell, um, called the Atlas of AI. And that's really like this attempt to kind of, uh, draw a kind of deeper time horizon in how we think about artificial intelligence. And we really want it to serve as a kind of sort of source book from which people can draw out kind of different long, long-term narratives. And we've got some great people writing for it. Well, just a handful of things there. Very exciting, man. And congratulations. That's a, a lot to have up in the air. I'm sure you're going crazy and I'm even more grateful that you had an hour to spare on a Saturday. So thank you. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks for having me. I very much enjoyed the conversation. I have, I have one request before you go. We have to do this with all guests before they leave. And it's a rapid fire question. Real fast questions. Do you have two more minutes for it? Absolutely. <laughs> All right. So first, as a technologist Luddite, what is your biggest technology pet peeve? Oh, you said quick fire, but that's tricky. <laughs> I, I, okay, it's really dumb. But uh, the fact that Microsoft calendars don't integrate with any other calendar service... <laughs> That is a valid concern, and given all technology interfaces that exist today, there's no reason why that should happen. I completely agree yeah. with you. Uh, <laughs> it seems as though you're a world traveler, as we mentioned earlier, uh, constantly all over Europe, New York, uh, LA, Vancouver. What is your favorite method to travel by, and why? Train. I love working, and I love working on a train. Yeah. Um, I actually really it's really important to me to be moving in order to think, but I also like being on planes because there's no Wi-Fi. but I actually think it's really a crime to put Wi-Fi on planes. That would be another. <laughs> Very nice. I was devastated when I had to take a flight from San Francisco to, uh, uh, to Australia. It was like a 13 hour flight and there was no Wi-Fi, And I was like, I have no idea what I'm going to do now, but it would, it ended up Sounds being one of the best flights ever. <laughs> <laughs> two different perspectives i guess uh last but certainly not least and this one's a heavier one but i'm going to force you to try to answer it quickly what would you like your legacy in the art world to be uh um okay too honest um i guess the the to be recognized as part of the group that reinitiated the collapse of religious experience uh, experience the technological and the divine um all at once <laughs> that's a that's a much longer conversation but uh you know i think that we're returning to something very interesting and and that technology gives us the potential to get there mm. i love it that's a great answer. Well, Ben, it's been uh, a real pleasure to get to talk to you. Um, thank you so much for fitting us into your busy schedule. And, uh, you know, I really hope our listeners pay attention and check out uh, all that you're producing, especially that book, you know, relative to the subject we're talking about. Sounds like it's going to be an awesome book. We'll definitely have to uh, add that to our calendars. Great. Well, thank you so much for having me. Have a beautiful day. Cheers. Bye. As always, listeners, thank you for tuning in to this episode of State of the Art. And uh, if you like what we're doing here at State of the Art, or if you like this episode, please rate and review us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Five-star reviews are always great. That's the most helpful thing you can do to help us, to help us grow, and to find other awesome listeners that like the same things you do. 
So thank you so much again, and I hope you tune in next week for another episode of State of the Art. 